I get to begin this morning with a bit of a confession. Uh, I am an addict. I'm a Frosted Flakes addict. Um, don't know how many of you are uh, big fans of this cereal, but when I was a young boy, uh, my father, who was a school teacher and had to work part-time jobs just to feed the six kids in our house, I didn't necessarily have an overabundance of food, so being the only boy, my mother noticed I was getting hungry more frequently than my sisters, and so her response to my hunger would often be, go get yourself a bowl of cereal. And so I would, day in and day out, whenever my hunger pangs uh, and stomach growled, um, I'd go to the cupboard and pour out a gargantuan bowl of Kellogg's best cereal. Um, now, here's the rub. To this day, whenever I'm up late, tired, angry, uh, a little bit lonely, uh, I will load up on a bowl of sugary, carbohydrate-stuffed breakfast cereal. Now, you say, well, what's the problem? Well, nutritionists would tell me <laughs> that Frosted Flakes may not be good for you, but apparently they have not looked at the box. This is a good source of vitamin D. <laughs> so... Nurse to the nutritionist in the building. My doctor, on the other hand, would say that there are some dangers associated with me consuming sugar at this rate, um, at not only an expanding waistline, but the potential at my age to be introduced to type 2 diabetes. So you would think with health and physical fitness and all of these things in play, um, I would be able to say no, but... Uh, that's not enough for me. Nothing can help me form enough strength to overcome. So the only thing we can do is make sure Carolyn doesn't buy it at the grocery store. And, and again, I, she won't do it unless I badger her into doing it. And, and so if we can keep it out of the house, uh, we're just, uh, we're going to be fine. Now, for many of us, the scenario I just described may not be our struggle. But another one is. Uh, whether you transpose frosted flakes with alcohol, smoking, pornography, your eating disorder, drugs, shopping whenever you feel low even though you don't have the funds to pay for it, we all have things that we will unfortunately turn to that are unhealthy for us that God at times has made it very clear he doesn't want us to participate in. We'll be tempted to do something that's bad for us because of the factors that kick in in our lives. We've got established patterns and habits. We've got uh, present conditions that may drive us to these behaviors and our own natural sinful inclinations. Now, for all of us, it's not if we're going to be tempted by something. It's a matter of when. And as we talked last week, many of us are more tempted to be passive then we are active in our battle against sin. Remember, not doing a good thing for another is as sinful as doing a bad thing to them. And today we continue our trek through the Lord's Prayer as we are using our 12-week chapel campaign to undertake the project of understanding and practicing prayer more faithfully as a church. Ironically, Praying is something that I would suspect most of us are tempted not to do every day. Think about that. Last week I mentioned that I was 
preaching through a passage that wasn't complicated to interpret. That if you were a Christian pastor, uh, Matthew 18's story of the un- unmerciful servant, the unforgiving servant, uh, is not difficult to understand or to preach through. And I would say this week I'm talking about an aspect of prayer that just about any person, let alone minister, would feel that he or she is an expert in, and that is temptation, because it is so common. And specifically, we're going to take a look at Jesus teaching us to pray, as he did in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Now, we'll deal with deliver us from evil next week. Before we look, though, at the subject of fighting temptation Jesus' way, it is important for us to restate our chief presupposition as Christians, and that is that we're not attempting to resist temptation so that God will love us more or out of fear that we'll be eternally judged and sent to hell if we fail to obey God's word. We, if we're a Christian, we resist temptation in the context of a friendship with a creator who we, in our hearts, are growing in our desire to please. We are learning to long to do what he wants instead of what we want. And if you and I are still trying to fight doing bad things out of selfish interest or because we think in some way it makes us feel better about our standing with God, our motive for compliance needs to be reconsidered. And you may say, well, why, are, why does it matter? Why does it matter why we are pursuing doing good things? And I'd say because if you're doing this for a reason other than out of simple love for God, you are potentially going to end up in a cycle of either self-righteousness or despair. Self-righteousness will happen when you start doing well at it, whatever it is. And if you think for a second you're going to do that apart from the presence of God, you can even pay lip service to these things and still think, I'm doing really well, and so therefore I get to feel better about who I am before God. The joy of the Lord now is mine because I'm doing well in this area. But that's not what the joy of the Lord is. The joy of the Lord is His grace extended to you. You knowing that you are forgiven and in His presence because of what Christ has done. It's independent of how well you're doing as a Christian or what you think you're overcoming better than you did six months ago. Don't get me wrong, there's joy that comes when you overcome things. But there is a self-righteousness that comes when we feel like we're doing it in our own strength. It's like some of my friends that are really into physical fitness. Most of them are pretty, uh, pretty humble about it. But if you've ever been around like CrossFit people or people who, are, uh, people who work out at like Muscle Beach in Venice... Um, they tend to like think like, yeah, you're a little person and I'm huge and fit, you know, and you kind of sort of feel small and, and they're pretty proud of themselves. And I know some very humble uh, people who are CrossFit people, so don't take that the wrong way. Lord knows I wish I was a CrossFit person. If I, had, <laughs> I wish I had the discipline for that. The other end of that spectrum is despair, though, and one of the reasons why we started this church in the first place is that because, you know, there's a huge population of people who just gave up. At some point, they, they met Jesus. They asked Jesus into their life. They repented of their sins. God elected them from eternity, and they came to realize that. Uh, however you're going to phrase it, they had a moment of spiritual rebirth, but they didn't get the memo 
that they can't live out the Christian life perfectly, that they're never going to ever be able to say, I can now feel good about who I am in Christ because I'm doing really well, you know, as a believer, having those quiet times every day. Stop cussing. Hey, feeling good about me. You're, there's no point in your life where it's ever appropriate for you or I to base our peace with God on what we're doing. And because they didn't get the memo that you can feel free in Christ, know Christ, you can be at rest with him even as he is growing us in Christ-likeness. At some point, they just said, forget it, I'm done. I've had enough. I can't do it. I'm a failure. I'm around a bunch of people who either aren't failing but aren't talking about it or are failing and are just lying about it. And frankly, I'm tired of them, tired of being around them. And they stopped going to church. This, from the statistical analysis, is the statistical analysis that I've done in our area of Los Angeles is the largest group of people, the I used to go to church folks. My hope would be that before we talk about temptation and how to combat it, that we would understand what fighting temptation is supposed to be about. As well, if you're a Christian, you say, I'm a believer, but you are locked into battling temptation, but failing to actually spend time seeking fellowship with God and prayer for your own soul's enjoyment, you're sort of missing the point. We don't fight temptation to fight temptation. We fight temptation because it drags us away from the, the souls being able to just delight in being a child of God. So if you are locked into, I've just got to fight this battle, I don't want to discourage you from fighting, but what are you fighting for? See, if you say to yourself, I'm doing this because I want to love God more, and I say, okay, that's a reasonable goal and a biblical one at that. But if you don't spend any time actually pursuing enjoyment of God, and that isn't really filling your soul, then you're never going to love him more. I was sharing with a friend this week a, a story from my early experience in church, uh, in a Christian church, although theologically a church that I probably wouldn't recommend anybody going to anymore because of one thing that stuck in my head for decades that this youth pastor said. And he used the analogy of playing out in the mud and then coming in and wanting to get a snack out of the kitchen and your mom stopping you at the door and saying, you've got to clean yourself up before you come in and get something to eat. And so you kind of had to wait outside until you're all clean, then you could come in. And he drew this as an, an analogy to how it is with us and God, that we can come in and access God and the things that God would help us to know and, and things that God would help us to experience once we clean ourselves up. Which said to me, I've got to either delusionally believe I'm a lot better than I am, or I'm never going to go in there because I'm never going to be able to be good enough for this. And the Christian life is you are not able to clean yourself up. In fact, the desire to fight temptation is only going to take place when you go into the kitchen, get into the fridge and say, Jesus, feed me. That's where you're going to come up with any desire to change any behavioral pattern in your life. This is the gospel. We've been freed to actually come into the presence of God and enjoy Him. Accomplishing or trying to accomplish righteous behavior, even recognizing intellectually that it must be done by the power of God, must take place in the context of relationship. 
You know, spouses uh, avoid the temptation of infidelity because of the person to whom they are married and in love. And in the absence of genuine intimacy with another person, you won't be mindful of them or care what you do to hurt them. And this is true in fighting temptation for God. If you're not engaged with him, you won't have the longing or the love for him to be concerned about grieving him. As many of you know, eight years ago I wrote a book called Three Tips for Campus Survival. It made the New York Times least seller list, if you hadn't heard. Pick up a free copy in a church lobby really near you. And while 3tips.com as a website is inactive, I still own the domain name, and I'm tempted to fantasize daily about Tony Robbins or some self-help guru coming to offer me big bucks for it. That's my struggle. Don't judge me. But every so often, because of this, I will get locked into 3tips mode. And today, as, or this past week, as I was studying the, the passage we're looking at today, Matthew 4, I, I came up with such a thing. So you'll forgive me as today I present you with three tips for fighting temptation. Following Jesus in our battle with sin. And the language is intentional. You see, it is a fight to follow Jesus. We are presumably walking with him and often tempted to venture off the path, the path he's leading us down. I also contend that being connected to Jesus emotionally is the only way to succeed in battling our temptations. And I want to say something that I hope you can get your arms around. If we don't experience a greater affection for him, we likely won't fight for him. If we don't experience a greater affection for him, we likely won't fight for him. See, his strategy to get you to fight for him is for you to know his love, to know that he has redeemed you, to know that you don't have to do anything else to get his attention and to have his affection. See, it's in that unconditional love that we actually find ourselves going, you know, this is the kind of guy I can fight for. Jesus is not General Patton shaming you and beating you and belittling you and calling you a coward because you're wounded and traumatized, Jesus' approach to the addict, the struggler, the lost brother, the weakling, is sympathy. Look at what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then come with confidence... Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So you and I, when we are at our weakest is when Jesus is the most receptive. When we are at our most broken and humble is the time when we are the most um, uh, free to come and access the help we need. This is the gospel. The, the desire to fight temptation doesn't happen outside the fellowship of the Spirit. It happens when you are in the fellowship of the Spirit. And Jesus has cleansed you to make it possible for you to be in his presence, holy in his sight, 
even as we're continuing to be made more Christ-like in practical ways. And you see this model, this empathy model, not only in Jesus' interactions with sinners in the gospel, but subsequent to his own battle with the devil. You'll remember from this morning's reading, Matthew 4.11, it says, the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You see, in the community that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is care, there is concern. Jesus being tenderly cared for by the angels sent to him by the Father. This is the heart of God. Jesus said he, he only does what he sees the Father doing. And the Father was caring for his Son in this battle with temptation. So my hope today is to engage you with three brief tips for fighting temptation, but to do so in such a way that you will want to primarily enjoy Jesus' presence and desire to begin simply walking behind him, walking with him. So tip one today, fighting temptation tip one is be spirit-led. And we're just going to walk through this passage, the first four verses, to give you some things that may seem like very basic insights, but really are life-changing. Jesus, it says in Matthew 4.1, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, the obvious observation about Jesus' battle with temptation is that it wasn't random. He was actually led by the Spirit to a place where he was going to be tempted. And this is the world we live in. There's nowhere you can hide from temptation. He was led into the spirit to be tempted and this has got all of these parallels to the first Adam's experience in the garden. He was tempted and failed. Satan came and spread lies. Adam and Eve bought them. Same experience is happening now to Jesus. The second Adam is what the New Testament calls Jesus and in the wilderness the enemy comes and tempts him with some of the same lies. See, Jesus was led by the Spirit. And you and I can be led the same way. See, being led by the Spirit means that we're engaged in fellowship with God through His presence in our life. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. If you are not a Christian, the Holy Spirit does not live in your physical being. We are children of God indwelled by the Spirit. And as such, we've made a priority out of having Him guide our lives, where we go, who we go with, and when we go. Romans 8, verses 14 through 15 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, if you are a child of God, you've got no fear in your relationship with God. You've got nothing but love. Perfect love casts out all fear. So God has said, come into my presence. Enjoy me. Walk with me. The Spirit of God living in you is saying, converse with me. Engage me. And for many of us, the battle to fight temptation must first be framed by our commitment to letting the Spirit who lives in us consume our lives, give us life, develop our identity, lead us. 
practically speaking, that means we aren't going to purposefully go anywhere. This Spirit isn't leading us. Now, I can tell you from experience that avoiding certain circumstances is often half the battle when it comes to fighting temptation. Uh, the Chinese general and military strategist Sun Tzu said that most battles are won before they're fought. From his book, The Art of War, he wrote, quote, the one who figures on victory at headquarters before even doing battle is the one who has the most strategic factors on his side. I used to say to teenagers who were in the youth ministry that I was a part of for a decade in Florida, not to drive off into the woods with their significant other, climb into the back seat of the car, and then try to see how strong you are. That's just foolishness. To the modern single person, I would say if you're prone to hookups, it would be wisest to never have a Tinder app on your phone in the first place. If you need to find a spouse through ChristianMingle.com or whichever hip, cool dating site is, is all the rage, fine. But you don't need an app whose singular purpose is to get you to get sexually active with somebody that you have no relationship with. You don't even need it. Why is it on your phone? That's the case for a lot of us. I can say for married people that one of the... Uh, one of the ways you can avoid divorce in a big way is determining never to be in an isolated, intimate conversation with someone who is not your spouse. That's a winning strategy for avoiding temptation in the first place. I have friends, guys who are ministers, who have experienced infidelity in their marriage. One, it was his infidelity. The other, it was his wife's infidelity. And in both cases, it started with, well, we were just hanging out with each other alone in the parking lot, talking. And then the next week, it was just the two of us again. And then we hugged goodbye, and it was just a little longer. And you know where it goes from there. It always starts with, we're alone in the parking lot late at night. We're alone at the office having dinner late. No one else is around. That's how it always starts. See, Jesus was led by the Spirit and I think in our case, there are times where you and I can make choices that will keep us from temptation. He's leading us, avoiding temptation by making wise choices. The, the, the list could go on. Some of you who own businesses could set up financial accountability so that you avoid embezzlement or tax evasion. See, the point is we have to soberly and humbly walk through this world of temptation if we're going to fight temptation Jesus' way, we're going to have to be led by the Spirit. It was the Apostle Peter who said in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that these same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Do you hear the sympathy in this? Of course you hear the admonition to be careful and to be wise. But do you hear him saying what's true? Everybody's going through this. Maybe in your isolation or you have some great shame in your life, you have uh, kind of hid yourself or your struggle from others. 
and all that's done is made you feel like you're the biggest loser at church. I just want you to know this whole room is full of people who battle temptation and fail often. This is the struggle, the suffering that's going on around the world. Don't think for a second that you're the only one. And if you're here and you think, I don't battle, your struggle is with an incognizance of your disobedience because you're far more unholy than you're giving yourself credit for. And, and your pride might just be your undoing. And that really actually leads us to our second point. Our, our first tip was be spirit-led. Our second tip is to be self-aware. I mean, if you're going to fight temptation, you not only got to be led by the Spirit, you've got to have a really good sense of where you're weak and strong. When you see it in Jesus' life, it really has to do with his physical temptation. Matthew 4, 2 and 3, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And I think at the latest International Bible Contest, this won the prize for the biggest understatement in the New Testament. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, you think? My son misses a meal and he calls me, I'm starving, you know, really. Four hours and you're going to do that. Jesus was encountered. It says, the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus was aware he was being led into temptation and also knew that the devil would attack what he perceived as an area of vulnerability. This is how the, the devil does it. He, he finds an area of vulnerability in your life and then he drives, tries to drive a big wedge between you and your father. This is how it happens. One key to fighting temptation is knowing your areas of vulnerability, areas in our case of great weakness or brokenness, let alone being aware of the times, places, and people that are part of our life. Self-awareness means knowing what is going on in your soul that would make you more apt to succumb to temptation. When I was in high school, it was a crowd of people that I didn't want to not hang around with because they were cool and they made me feel cool and I needed to feel cool. But it happened that every time I'd hang out with these cool people, I'd end up face down drunk. At some point, I had to go, these guys, um, they're not going the same place I'm going. I can't be around them anymore, at least not at this stage of my life. And, and I can tell you that at that age, I wouldn't have had the the maturity to be able to look deeply within my soul and go, you know the real problem here? I need to be popular. That's what's driving me to have to hang out with these folks. And if you're struggling with any variety of things, you can say, okay, on the surface, I'm going to keep this, I'm going to wall off this temptation. I'm going to avoid these people in this circumstance. But you're still going to have to deal with the substantial issue in your heart where Jesus needs to do healing in you to say, you know, the reason I want to drink is because I'm sad. Why am I sad? I'm sad because of this. Okay, Jesus, if you don't start working on this deep, dark sadness in me, I'm always going to just be thirsty. I need you to do a deep work in me. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13 says, Therefore, if anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome, overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
I uh, have said before from the pulpit, and I mean it with all of my heart, and uh, last service had a guy come, it was his first time to our church, and he goes, I'm so glad you said what you said. I love people who are in recovery. Um, They're just fun people because they have no tolerance for BS. I mean, they will just tell you, I'm a drunk, and you're like, awesome, man, (laughs) you're willing to actually just out it, you know, to get it out there. It, it tells me that they have a confidence level that says, I'm broken, but I know Jesus loves me. When I meet him in church, they're like, yes, I'm dealing with this, and I, I feel so bad, but I'm like, you know what? You should feel great because you're getting the gospel. You're not worried what other people think about you. You're, you're bringing it out in the open. You're exposing it to the light. That's the first step, and, man, you're finding it, and there's a freedom you're experiencing that some people will never experience because they don't get the gospel. And so they're constantly hiding their stuff and posturing to make themselves look better than they really are. People in recovery use the acronym HALT to heighten their awareness of when their temptation to yield to their addiction is more likely. That acronym HALT, H-A-L-T, stands for hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. When these things are indicators in their life, they're more prone to give in The characteristics that all of those conditions share is that they are irritations which tend to demand comfort. And we must be humbly aware of the conditions of our souls. If we're going to fight temptation, we've got to be led by the Spirit, but we've got to be really self-aware. You've got to know this is a soft spot. And if I have an adversary, and you do, who's trying to dredge or drive a wedge between you and your Heavenly Father, and he is, you've got to be really aware of what's going on in your heart. In James 4, 6 through 7, the half-brother of Jesus says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So be spirit-led, be self-aware. Here's the final tip, tip three, fighting temptation. You need to be fluent in truth. Jesus answered in Matthew 4, 4, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The final component of our battle with temptation is the offensive weapon that the book of Ephesians refers to as the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We hold in our church and in our network and in Orthodox theology across the globe that the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, are the living, breathing, revelation, Word of God given to us. In his battle with Satan, Jesus, the one who Christians say was resurrected from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father, quoted the Old Testament as though it were the authoritative word of God. Our apologetic for Scripture's validity, authority, reliability is as simple as saying that if the one who rose from the dead and all authority in heaven and on earth is at his fingertips, if he quoted the Old Testament, that it's probably pretty reliable. 
There are others who will say, you know, well, he's quoting the Old Testament. I don't trust the New Testament, or I trust the New Testament, but only the Gospels, those pesky letters from the apostles are a little bit sexist and a little bit this and a little bit that. And now let's pick them apart and destroy their reliability. And I would say to you, if you say that you aren't going to believe in the New Testament except for the Gospels, I, I would hope you would recognize that if somebody said that to you, how silly that is because the same people that wrote the Gospels wrote the New Testament letters too. Jesus didn't write the Gospels. The historical accounts of what Jesus did and worked with were written by the same apostles that wrote the letters to the church that we call Scripture. And these letters contain the Word of God. And this Word is what we're going to have to know because it contains truth. And when Satan comes to you, he's going to come to you with lies. And that's why one of the last things Jesus did was pray for his disciples in John 17, 17 through 19. Jesus is praying to his Father for us and saying, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they, almost, that they also may be sanctified in truth. You see, Satan's chief strategy from Adam's original sin into the garden to Jesus' temptation in the desert wilderness is to get us to either disregard, dismiss, or simply be ignorant of what the truth of God's word has to say. This is strategy number one. Sun Tzu, again, in The Art of War says, what is of supreme importance in war is to attack the enemy's strategy. So here we are in tip three, and I'm telling you, if you're going to battle lies, you've got to know truth. And that means that many of us are going to have to start carving out times in our supremely busy L.A. schedules and either listening to the Bible on tape during the commute or putting it in your headphone and listening at lunch while you eat your sandwich or getting up a half hour earlier before to go to work to dig into God's Word and see what He's saying about how much He loves you and about who He is and discovering truth to combat the wall of lies that are coming your way in this battle with temptation. I mean, it is a sea of bull. And if you don't know the truth, you're not going to be able to fight. You're not going to be able to say as Jesus did, no, 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 no. The Word of God says, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. My lovely wife Carolyn and I have read The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. If you've gone through a pre-marriage course, you've more than likely been encouraged to do so. Uh, if you're not familiar with this book, uh, good. Um, no, I'm serious. Uh, the, the book itself is helpful. It really is. It talks about how we have a way that we tend to relate to others, and it's created a paradigm to say, you know, we tend to feel love from others when it is communicated in one of five ways, and the five ways are a physical touch, words of affirmation, uh, time together, um, or... Uh, uh, giving gifts. The fifth one is not my natural gift. Um, that is uh, service. 
acts of service. Some people, they like me, you know, we're so desperate for love, we'll take love language in any language we can get. You know what I mean? So you touch, words of affirmation, gifts, I'll take it all. Some people, like my beautiful, wonderful wife, have a single love language, and that is acts of service. That's how she gives love. That's how she feels love. And that means that if I'm going to actually communicate to Carolyn that I love her, I can't do what comes by default to me, which is, oh, let me hug you, let me touch you and kiss you, and let me uh, tell you how wonderful you are. And she's like, yeah, that's terrific, thanks. When are you going to clean up the, the garage? You know, and say, oh, <laughs> So every day I walk out the door, usually an hour later than her, because she has to get to work earlier than I do, and I am the last one out of bed, so the bed is like, <laughs> and, and of course there's probably some dishes on, you know, on the kitchen counter from last night's Frosted Flakes binge, and, and so uh, I have a choice at that moment. I, I can either clean up the house, or I can get on my motorcycle and get here to work as quick as I can. <laughs> And boy, I tell you, it's tempting to just get to work some days. And, and then I remember how much joy it gives Carolyn when she comes home earlier than I do to the house being clean. And that's when I get my words of affirmation because I'll get one of these texts that says, thanks for cleaning the house, heart, 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 you know. And I got to tell you, it isn't physical touch, but it's close. <laughs> heart, heart, heart is all a brother like me needs. And, 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 and you know, to know that she's experiencing joy because of an act of service on my part. That's, that's why I do it. You see, I, I don't fear Carolyn's going to leave me if I don't. There are plenty of other things other than cleaning the house she'd leave me over, trust me. No, she would never do that. But I'm saying there's little, that's never even in the equation. Uh, for Carolyn, uh, I, I want to love her. I like her. I like to make her happy. And, and so resisting temptation to just jet to work and ignore the crap behind me is about a relationship. It's about doing something for somebody I care about. And this is where you and I come back to an earlier thought in our process, that if you aren't really engaged with Jesus, and if you're not experiencing a greater affection for him, you likely won't fight temptation because it has to be about pleasing the Savior who you know and who you are growing to love. And it's why Jesus would have told us, pray, lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Father, today we're grateful that we get to simply be your children, but that you've also taught us how to pray, and so we do pray that you would not lead us into temptation. We also pray that, Jesus, we would follow your example of how, in the context of a relationship with the Father, to strategically uh, put ourselves in a position where we can resist temptation. Uh, it involves us knowing you, though. And I know for many of us, our impulse would be to go home and throw away something or go home and you know, change our schedule to make time uh, to help poor people, which, is, which would be all good things. But if we don't find really a place where you can regularly tell us that we're loved by you, that we are your children, that we um, don't have to perform for others or you. If we don't find our soul's delight in you, um, Father, we probably won't fight for you. So we pray that by the grace of the 
Lord Jesus, and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that you would reaffirm to us even today that you love us and, and it is because we have you and because we are secure in you that we would be moved to follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.